ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Motley Fool Asset Management asks, do you like the low cost and convenience of passive funds, but want stock picks that have the potential to beat the market? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF could be the solution you've been looking for. Motley Fool Asset Management took the 100 top-rated stock picks selected by the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC and put them all into one simple low-cost ETF. The ticker is TMFC. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. That's fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. Is it time to amplify your income potential? Explore what a high-quality covered call strategy can do for your monthly income needs. Discover Amplify DIVO and IDVO providing monthly income potential and active management in the efficiency of an ETF. When income matters to you, explore Amplify ETFs. Get current monthly yields at amplifyyields.com. There's no guarantee that distributions will be made. Investing risk includes principal loss. ETFs are subject to covered call risk. Visit AmplifyETFs.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully. Amplify ETFs are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, so earlier this week, I had the pleasure of attending the Inside ETFs conference down in uh, Hollywood, Florida. It was, I guess, a four-day event. It ran Sunday through Wednesday, which was uh, yesterday. But as usual, I had a, a great time. Always love connecting with many of you who I know listen to this podcast. It's always one of my favorite things about attending these types of events. But I also like going to these because... It really gives me an opportunity to put my finger on the pulse of the industry and I would say get a much better feel for what's hot and what's not in ETFs. And so this week, I want to share some of my biggest takeaways from the event. And I'm really excited about the uh, format in which I'll be doing that because joining me will be Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. Now, Todd was actually unable to make it down to Inside ETFs, but I think as uh, most listeners know, Todd covers the ETF space as well as anyone. And so as I thought about this, I actually like the idea of bouncing my takeaways off of Todd uh, to get sort of an independent perspective since he didn't have his uh, 
ETF conference goggles on this week like I did. And so I thought it'd be interesting to hear his take on my takeaways. And ultimately, what I really think this boils down to is it's a tour around the world of ETFs, right? It's looking at the hottest trends in ETFs right now, which I like to do periodically with uh, Todd anyway. So without further ado, let's dive right in with the one and only Todd Rosenbluth. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. $800 billion, I think we have to say that again, $800 billion and counting for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive. Todd, welcome to the uh, podcast. As I understand it, you're dialing in like literally from Wall Street, correct? I am. I had the pleasure of joining Craft ETFs, which launched an artificial intelligence ETF yesterday. They did the New York Stock Exchange bell ringing. I had the honor of being up on the podium with them. Just came off. I'm now in the back alleys on William Street and Exchange, if anybody knows uh, New York City streets well enough. Uh, but excited to be with you and welcome back from uh, another conference. What an experience being up on the podium. I've been fortunate to do that one time. I've been to several bell ringings, which all of them are just a fantastic experience. But there's nothing like being up on that podium, is there? Yeah, it's, it's great energy. Uh, the team at the New York Stock Exchange uh, celebrates in style. And there's so much history at the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, the Buttonwood Tree, I'm sure anyone that's been to one of these bell ringings can, can do a version of Douglas Jonas's story. Uh, but it's great to be there, and but equally as important, great to talk to you about. I think we're going to cover artificial intelligence ETFs among the many round trip uh, topics we're going to have. It, we are. It's funny you mentioned that. Uh, that's absolutely one of the topics I want to get to, and and we'll do that in a few minutes. But I guess just to set the stage here. Uh, as I mentioned at the top, I know you couldn't make it down to inside ETFs, but you are one of the best ETF analysts out there. And so I thought it'd be fun to tee up some of my takeaways from the event and just get your thoughts, uh, get your hot takes, because I feel like regardless, these are all important topics in the world of ETFs. These aren't conference specific. So, uh, you know, I think these incorporate many of the biggest trends and topics in the industry. I guess you can tell me if you agree with that. But here, here's what I'll do. I'll tee up these different topics. We'll bat them around, and we'll, we'll just see where that uh, takes us. And so, look, first, let me start with a, uh, a very broad takeaway I had, which is that there was definitely this feeling or uh, sentiment that the next five or ten years in ETFs is going to look much different than the past uh, two or three decades since ETFs first launched in 1993. And, and let me elaborate on that just a little bit. So this really focused around the continued growth and acceleration of actively managed ETFs. And that while uh, ETFs are obviously rooted in passive, it's active management that's going to drive interest and innovation in ETFs. Now, I, I want to be clear, that doesn't mean uh, Vanguard and iShares and State Street won't continue vacuuming up investor dollars, right, into primarily cheap index-based ETFs. It's just that the industry is evolving, and there are new firms leading this innovation. Now, my guess is, Todd, you probably agree with that, but what I'll ask you is, like, how different do you think things could look moving forward compared to what we've seen in the past? So... Uh, I agree with you. Active management is going to play a huge role in the next five years of the ETF industry. Uh, 
in many forms. Uh, so we've seen, you know, in just the past year, we've had firms like Capital Group launch ETFs, and they're now approaching $10 billion. We have Dimensional Fund only a couple of years ago entered the ETF marketplace. They are now on the leaderboard of, you know, top 10 issuers. We have JP Morgan's uh, equity premium ETF, JEPI, which is, again, uh, among the leading ETFs. Uh, this is an actively managed ETF. It has, I think, roughly $25 billion alone uh, as the largest ETF. So I do think we're going to see a lot uh, of change. What's also notable is this week, BlackRock uh, launched two actively managed ETFs, one from Rick, uh, from uh, a prominent fixed income manager who's running their flexible income fund. And what was more notable to me is they launched a large cap value, uh, actively managed large cap value ETF from one of a, their their experienced managers. And obviously the audience knows iShares offers some of the largest, in fact, three or four of the largest large cap value ETFs in the iShares Russell 1000 value and the iShares S&P 500 value. And I could go on and on. So the fact that BlackRock is further embracing active ETFs uh, is just a sign of, of the reality that we're in right now. A hundred percent. And as I thought more about this as well, the, the firms that you mentioned, um, Capital Group, Dimensional, J.P. Morgan, I would uh, certainly toss somebody like Avantis in there. I thought to myself, what what's going to slow them down? And I couldn't really come up with a great answer. You, you know, most of these... Uh, act managers are, are offering lower cost active products. I think costs will continue to come down. Cost has been the biggest hurdle in the active space. So I don't see that trend changing. Uh, I think clearly we're in a shifting market environment and, and we're not going to get into a whole active versus passive de- debate today. But I, I think clearly you're going to have investors looking at active strategies, both on the uh, on the equity side and the fixed income side. So I, I think this makes sense. And again, I don't see flows, uh, you know, stopping into to cheap Vanguard and, and iShares products. But I do think that this is a real trend in active management. And I, I agree. I think the next you know five to 10 years will look different than what we've seen over the past few decades. One other thing I, I do want to mention, Todd, is that I know um, ARC and Kathy Wood can be a, a bit polarizing to, to some in- investors. But I would say regardless of what you think about their investment approach, I actually think they deserve a lot of credit for uh, initiating this trend, right? This, this movement towards active, uh, transparent ETFs. They really, I think, got a lot of active managers comfortable with operating in the uh, ETF wrapper. And I think it's worth pointing that out. Again, regardless of what you think of their investment approach, um, I think they were pioneers in that regard. I don't know if you have any quick thoughts on that. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, they proved that active and ETFs could go together uh, and not be an oxymoron. And then we've seen firms uh, come into the space and further embrace it, establish asset managers like T. Rowe Price and Harbor, uh, Neuberger Berman. These are firms that have a, a long history within the mutual fund world who have come to realize that they need to offer ETFs and they need to embrace the ETF structure in their product lineups. And the, I, I missed one earlier. Since the exchange conference, uh, or actually at the exchange conference, Calamos uh, entered the ETF marketplace. So we're running out of firms that don't have an ETF presence uh, that are in the active management world. I was alluding to this a little bit earlier, but another part of this innovation that was discussed, just in terms of how things might look different moving forward, 
was uh, in the bond ETF space. I, I mean, there was a lot of talk, as you can probably imagine, around fixed income and the different ETF options available here. And I actually thought of you because uh, I visited with FM Investments' Alex Morris, who I know you recently wrote a, a really nice piece on all of their success. Uh, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, Alex said they're already at $1.6 billion in assets. They just launched their first single treasury bond ETF last August. To, to me, they are the perfect example of uh, innovation in bond ETFs. But the question I'll ask you here. I, I guess it's twofold. Number one, why do you think someone like FM has had so much success? And then two, just more broadly, I'm curious, I mean, what else has you excited in the world of bond ETFs? So, you know, fixed income ETFs came about a decade after the first U.S. equity ETFs, and innovation has been a bit slower to come about, but it's really the last few years I think we've seen it happening. You, you mentioned FM. Uh, they've got the single treasury ETFs that I, I think you are a bigger believer on. I remember being quoted in the article with you, and I was the, the skeptic, and you were much more optimistic, and you were right. Uh, but they, FM, with products like T-Bill, what a great ticker, great ticker. Uh, for, for, for an ETF, um, and Bond Blocks that has similar single treasury ETFs, uh, they're X-O-N-E, uh, X-1, uh, has been, I think, their most popular ETF. But Bonblox has also been innovative in slicing the high-yield market uh, notably. So you've got double B only bond ETFs and single B and triple C, as well as the sectors. Uh, but I think of, you know, the loan market, uh, which I remember years ago people saying was dangerous to have within the ETF structure and there wasn't enough liquidity Invest Well, one, we haven't seen that happen. Uh, the facts bear out that there is enough liquidity to meet investors' interest. But I don't know if you you know the ticker uh, JAAA, mm -hmm. which is the Janice Henderson CLO ETF. That's going to turn three years old, I think, in October, and it already has over $2.5 billion. There is just an appetite for narrow slices of the marketplace. And since you mentioned active and fixed income ETFs. Another milestone in the last couple of weeks was DoubleLine launching a mortgage ETF. Uh, I think the ticker is DMBS. So DoubleLine and then mortgage-backed securities would be the ticker that goes with it. Um, and DoubleLine is, of course, known for Jeffrey Gunlock's expertise uh, with the, the DoubleLine total return mutual fund, $30 billion and, and, and counting, I think, mutual fund base. This is now a, a, a slice of that focused on mortgages run by the same team. So there's just, if you want it in the ETF space, there's certainly going to be a product that's there. And hopefully I got the tickers right uh, for, for all of these products. Todd, this is exactly why I have you on the podcast, because you're not going to believe this. Everything that you just walked through, I had flagged as well. Uh, it's funny, bond blocks, um, you mentioned their uh, target duration treasury ETFs that they rolled out and then slicing and dicing the, the high yield market. They launched their first ETF in February of uh, last year. They're already at $1.5 billion in, in assets. You mentioned the CLO ETFs. I had numerous conversations uh, at the conference regarding CLO ETFs, believe it or not. And then Double Line, again, a good example. Here you have a, a traditional active manager leveraging the ETF wrapper and doing so in the fixed income space. So that's that's one I think we both agree as you look forward, there's just going to be continue to be a lot more innovation here. 
And uh, I know you and I have talked a lot about just when you look at the ETF space overall, there is a lot of, I still believe, a lot of white space to, uh, to innovate in, in bond ETFs. Um, sticking with this theme of ETF innovation, I cannot tell you how much I heard about artificial intelligence in ETFs this week. It, it was absolutely one of the hottest topics. And just to be clear, I'm talking about uh, ETFs using artificial intelligence as part of their investment process, not not ETFs that invest in companies involved with AI. So like we recently saw the uh, the Roundhill AI ETF, ticker chat, great ticker that launched. I'm, I'm not talking about that type of ETF, but ETFs that are leveraging AI as part of their investment process. And I saw that you were quoted yesterday in a really nice piece from uh, Investment News' Jeff Benjamin on this. I, I'd love to have you share some of those thoughts with ETF Prime listeners, just in terms of the prospects of AI-powered ETFs moving forward? I mean, are you bullish? Are you bearish on this marriage between AI and ETFs? So I, I am. I want to just, I want to piggyback on, on the distinction you made. So yeah, th- these products are not like the chat ETF that just launched from Brownhill, or there's a robo uh, ETF that's tied to one of the Vetify indexes. The ticker is CH and QThink. Uh, we've got great tickers within the thematic space uh, within the industry. But, yes, artificial intelligence-driven ETFs that are picking the underlying securities, or in the case of the AIDB ETF that just launched yesterday that we touched on, I was part of the bell ringing, um, where that's making a decision to move in to the U.S. equity markets or move into more cash-like securities, uh, short, ultra-short treasury-related ETFs based on artificial intelligence uh, and doing that on a weekly basis to see if the, the machine believes now is a good time to be aggressive or a good time to be uh, taking money off the table. I, I think there's an opportunity here, uh, both in, in, in proving that there can be performance uh, and value added, but also that there can be investor interest. There hasn't been to date uh, ETFs from a craft firm like AMOM or I think of AIEQ, which is an Equibody ETF, there's been limited uh, assets that have gone into thus far. I just think people don't know about them, uh, and that's just an awareness effort. But if, if the choice between having a human manager with emotion uh, to make decisions or to potentially tap into artificial intelligence to, to do that, I think many advisors are open uh, to that. The more they get comfortable with uh, AI uh, and what it can do in their overall practice, not to replace them, but to complement what it is they're doing. So, but let me ask you, uh, are you a believer? I, my thoughts are all over the board on this. And I, I guess I'll start to your last point. Um, Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas was on a panel on this topic, and I agreed with his take on this, which is that, Basically, this is the evolution of smart beta ETFs. It's the next step in further optimizing and automating the investment process. I, I think that's probably the right way to think about this. Now, certainly, traditional active managers may uh, leverage AI or they will leverage AI to help in their investment process as well. But I think we're, we're potentially the most value can be added is, is using AI as part of a very disciplined investment process, removing that human emotion to what you were hitting on. Now, I I always come back to, we'll see what the performance looks like in in these products that are leveraging AI, because that's ultimately what matters. And 
I, I'm no AI expert. Uh, <laughs> I'll admit that up front. But ultimately, Todd, humans are building these AI models and humans are providing the inputs. And if humans are involved in any way, to me, that means underperformance is a, a possibility. And you mentioned uh, AIEQ, the AI Powered Equity ETF. Some would say that's the most prominent AI ETF currently on the market. Since inception, that thing is up 29%. The S&P 500 is up nearly 80%. That's since October 2017. And Eric actually pointed out at the, uh, at the conference that ETF has something like 17,000, sorry, 1,700% turnover. So transaction costs... Are, are really you know eating you up performance wise. So I, I go back and forth. I can see the value in in leveraging AI, but I, I again the proof will be in the pudding with performance. And the other thing that I worry a little bit about, I actually sent out a, a, a tweet last night. It was a meme on AI and in a bubble here, and that wasn't so much around uh, like like an investment thesis or statement. It's just that I think we're going to see AI being used as a uh, a marketing term, as a marketing buzzword. And I worry a little bit about that. We, we've seen that previously with ESG, which, yes, I do want to ask you about. And in the crypto space, I, I just worry that it gets used as a marketing term. So, Nate, my apologies. Up, up Wall Street is a race or a run uh, on behalf on tied to Memorial Day, uh, so I'm walking away from it. But yes, folks, this is really happening live. If you can hear that <laughs> in the background, um, I, you know, I don't want to go. I don't want to dive too deep uh, on on individual AI ETFs. But yes, the devil is in uh, the details. What it owns, who else is out there? But again, not not because they were I was part of the bell ringing, but because I'm aware of them. Uh, the Craft ETF QRFT has performed differently. Uh, I know it's up 8% this year, which is close to the broader market. It's up 12%, I think, on an annualized basis over the last three years. So you're right. It's humans that are putting, that are feeding what goes into AI the same way that there's humans that are coming up with the index rules for smart beta strategies. So it's important to see what the output is. It's important to see what the performance record is. This is active management. You really want to make sure you're comfortable with active management. And the downside is you can't ask the, the AI why it bought what it bought, uh, the, the way that you can certainly ask um, you know, the manager of Jeppy uh, as to why, uh, why they own individual stocks. The model told us to do it is, is, is going to be a tired answer the third time you ask it. 100%. Again, I agree. The devil's in the details. And that's why I, I just think investors need to be cautious when they see AI in a fund name or in a fund description, or they read it in a prospectus, really make sure they understand exactly what that ETF is doing. Uh, Todd, I, I mentioned ESG. Let's just broach that topic now. I, I think, as you know, ESG has become a staple at just about every conference. Uh, it, it hasn't gone away. It still generates a ton of interest. And th that was the case this week. And my, my takeaway here was that the industry overall does still seem pretty bullish on ESG ETFs, which was a little surprising to me. But I'll caveat that by saying it also feels like the quote-unquote greenwash products are going to be a very tough sell moving forward. That ESG ETFs that look like the benchmark and charge a higher fee, they, those simply aren't resonating. Now, I don't know if you agree with that, so I'll just ask you any thoughts on the types of ESG ETFs that you think 
may resonate moving forward. Well, I I think we I think we are of different minds on the growth opportunities of ESG and things that are like the S and P 500 but are more ESG filtered. So I won't I won't repeat that with you. I would just note some of the interesting products that have come out in the last few years and that we're seeing engagement on our Vetify platform are slices. So we're seeing uh, the carbon ETF from Crane Shares, uh, KRBN, uh, popular that invest in carbon future, carbon credit futures, uh, and that's been popular for investors that can tap into that. So that's more the E, the environmental aspect. Uh, Harbor has a suite of products uh, under the theme Happy uh, that are corporate culture ETFs, and uh, the small cap version of the product HAPS. Uh, just crossed a million dollars in assets under management only a couple of months after launching, and we're seeing strong interest in that. And then, you know, of course, you've got uh, G. We've, we've seen a number of firms that are launching, uh, in fact, BNY Mellon being one of them, that, that focus on just gender equality and, and diversity. So whether or not advisors continue to show engagement and interest in these slices, of ESNG. No one likes that acronym. Uh, no one likes the smart beta acronym. Uh, but I think there's a role for these products within the industry. And I think we are going to see a niche audience for each of those pillars. One thing that I was encouraged about was that I felt like the discussion around ESG ETFs was much more practical. Whereas at past conferences, I felt like it was a huge marketing push. It, it almost felt like you were the devil if you didn't invest in ESG. But I felt like the discussions this week were much more balanced and truly looking at the pros and cons and, and really trying to understand the E, the S, and the G. I think that's good. I, I know some people think I'm anti-ESG or, or, or something like that. It's more just that I think there needs to be better education around what investors are actually getting with these ETFs, and that'll help them make more informed uh, decisions. So I, I was encouraged by that. Uh, Todd, let's continue going through a few other hot topics here. I have to ask you about emerging markets and emerging market ETFs. That that may have actually gotten the most run at the conference. There were a bunch of panels on this. I had a lot of offline uh, individual conversations on this topic. It really is what everyone wanted to discuss. And I know you're not a, uh, a big fan of making market calls, so I, I'm not going to ask for your opinion on the investment side of the equation. But l- let's just assume that EM does finally have some sustained outperformance moving forward. Let's say EM does turn. Do you have any thoughts on the types of ETFs that could benefit the most? Is it the plain vanilla stuff like the IEMGs and the VWOs and the SEHEs of the world that you think will get the most looks? Or are there other EM-related ETFs that you would be watching instead? So I think the most of the money is initially going to go into those core low-cost, broadly diversified uh, Vanguard and iShares ETF. As you mentioned, VWO from Vanguard and IEMG from iShares. Investors, U.S. investors and advisors, tend to think very broad with their asset allocation, investing internationally, where they're much more likely to go uh, more tactical uh, with their exposure for U.S. equity. Uh, but I do think if we are going to see a shift, because the home bias is, is moving on. You know, products uh, like KWeb from Crane Shares um, is certainly one of the larger products around, very growth-oriented. It's the, it's the Internet companies. 
um, that that specifically ties to China, and I think people are getting more comfortable in, in over, potentially overweighting their exposure to China. Uh, but a couple of lesser known ones to me, I, I think income is going to still be a relevant theme, uh, and in this environment, even when the specifically when the Fed stops raising interest rates, and so Wisdom Tree has uh, an emerging markets high dividend ETF. The ticker is DEM. Uh, that I think is notable, and then uh, E-Dog, uh, so E and then the letters D-O-G, is an ALP CTF that invests in the highest dividend-yielding stocks uh, across various, all of the sectors in emerging markets. I think that's, those are two under-the-radar ways of investing in, in emerging markets. One more growth, or three, I guess, uh, the K-Web one that's more growth-oriented, uh, and DEM and EDOG that are more value dividend oriented. You mentioned China. That was uh, absolutely a huge part of this discussion. There was a lot of debate over whether uh, investors should allocate to China, just given the, the potential situation with Taiwan. Uh, but on the other hand, you look, China is the second largest economy in the world. Do you really want to exclude an economy like that uh, from your investment? So I, I thought there was some fascinating discussion there. And by the way, I should note, Broad EM has not turned yet. It is still underperforming this year. But developed international is slightly outperforming and, and actually substantially outperforming since Q4 of last year. I just want to make that point. And I'll leave you. You may have seen this. I tweeted this out maybe like I don't know, a week and a half ago, but I have to give this stat. And, and yes, listeners, this is cherry picked, but I, I couldn't help myself. If you go back to November 1st of 2007, the uh, iShares Emerging Markets ETF, ticker EEM, L- listen to this, it is flat, as in zero total return. At the same time, the S&P 500, if you look at an ETF like SPY, that's up about 270%. To me, that's just staggering. And again, that's a cherry pick stat. I, I know if you go back into the early part of the, uh, you know, the 2000s, obviously EM had a great run. But still, for investors that have been allocating to EM over the past roughly you know, 15, 16 years, man, that's a, uh, that, that's a tough run. And, and again, I had a lot of conversations with advisors where some of them are just throwing in the towel. They can't take the pain anymore. You, you know, they've had to explain to their clients for 10 plus years as to why they've owned EM and it hasn't performed. So I, I, this is going to continue to be a, an interesting topic to watch. Um, okay. Another topic of conversation, and this one won't surprise you at all, was crypto ETFs. And I, I promise you, Todd, that wasn't because I was bringing it up. I, it was actually a real topic on panels and in the uh, exhibit hall. Not not as big a topic as it was last year, even two years ago, but it was still noticeable. And so as you look at the crypto ETF landscape right now, obviously there's still no spot Bitcoin ETF, though I, I do have to mention, and I'm guessing you saw this, apparently we're getting a two times leverage Bitcoin futures ETF soon uh, from volatility shares. So they put out you a, and Eric Valchunas should be wearing a shirt on the day that launch. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. They uh, they put out this press release saying they're targeting a June 13th launch. You know what? I'm not even going to get started on that. I'm just going to stay away from that topic today. <laughs> We're going to get de- derailed. Um, but but anyway, so it looks like that's going to launch uh, here in a couple of weeks. The SEC did recently slap down Ether futures ETF. So it doesn't look like we're getting those. And then, of course, if you look at uh, blockchain ETFs, those are actually some of the top performing ETFs this year. I, I talked about this with uh, Valkyrie's Leah Wald a few weeks ago. So 
Any quick thoughts on the current state of uh, crypto ETFs? And I, I will say, I know it's a little bit of a tired topic. I can actually now see that when I tweet about it. There's just a lack of any sort of engagement on crypto-related ETFs. But any thoughts on this uh, this part of the ETF landscape, Todd? Well, I'm not at all surprised it came up because the ETFs, either Bitto in particular, that's futures-based and some of its peers, or the blockchain ETFs, are among the best-performing ETFs around. There's just not money going in to these ETFs. That's the strange thing. I agree. Um, it very... It, it, it feels like people have, well, either they're no longer looking towards ETFs as the way of getting exposure. They've forgotten about these ETFs. They don't want to get burned a second time in case they don't believe in that, that the underlying, uh, that Bitcoin itself is going to continue to, to go up and the companies that are benefiting from it will do so. I'm just shocked that we haven't seen money. In fact, I don't have the data in front of me. Apologies. But I think most of these ETFs have seen net outflows or minimal inflows. In fact, I think more money went into BITI, the short uh, Bitcoin ETF from, from ProShares, than BITO, the long uh, futures-based product. And I'm doing that from memory, so apologies if I'm wrong. But it, it, you would think more money was going into it. I don't think we're getting an ETF uh, that, that's going to make you and others happy that's spot-related uh, anytime soon. But there's analogs. Uh, to invest in, uh, that, that you touched on some of them, Thado, uh, Block, um, among ETFs, and people just are not putting the money into it that I would have expected. Yeah, in conversations I had, I, I, we talked about that, and I think it really boiled down to two things. I think one is the obvious, which is that investors were so badly burned by crypto over the past you know year and a half and, and crypto related ETFs they're just they're, they're not going to put money into that right now and and that gets into the second reason which is there's a lot of what I'll call headline risk right now the, the SEC is clearly uh, pursuing you know an aggressive agenda in, in this space and aggressive enforcement and I think that has the crypto space rattled and investors are taking the approach of let's just wait to see what happens before allocating. But I, I agree with you. It's fascinating. Just given the performance, you look at the ETF performance leaderboard this year, there's a crypto-related ETFs all over that thing, but it's not resulting in flows, which is unusual. Typically, you'll see flows follow the performance. Um, all right, Todd, I know you're on a, a tight agenda here. I want to get you back to your festivities at the New York Stock Exchange. So let me close with a couple of other quick takeaways and I'll tell you this first one. This this may be conference specific, but I do feel like it's worth mentioning. And it has to do with ETF issuer uh, marketing. I, I felt like there was a noticeably smaller marketing presence from ETF issuers at Inside ETFs. There were fewer booths, uh, hardly any presence from the largest issuers. And again, it's entirely possible that was conference specific. But I do think issuers are looking at other ways to get their message out, whether that be through podcast or uh, videos, social media. I feel like there's much more of a digital marketing thrust. And again, I, I know you weren't on the ground at the conference to observe this. So I'll just ask you, how do you think ETF issuer marketing uh, has evolved over the past several years? Or, or how do you think it may evolve moving forward? Yeah, so I guess a, a quick and full disclosure, uh, Vetify uh, runs the exchange ETF conference that took place in February of this year and will take place again in February 2024, where we saw 80% increase year over year in the number of advisors that were there. We saw a number of asset managers launch products there, and it was a great event. So I'll, I'll, let me, let me let that be said that there's opportunities 
uh, to do things again. But we certainly are seeing asset managers work with us and others within the industry to tell their story, to provide investor and advisor education in different ways. So webcasts remain extremely popular. You know, they, they, they were really popular coming into the pandemic, uh, but they remain popular outside of the pandemic. I, I am a moderator with Laura Krieger and Tom Leiden. We share those moderator responsibilities. I did a webcast yesterday with ProShares with over 600 registrants uh, that were that were part of this to hear about one particular ETF and and the overall investment case for for that. That I won't name the ticker just for the sake of not advertising for them on your program. But we're seeing asset managers look towards webcasts, look towards uh, podcasts like your own, and and look towards ways to get their content out there and reach advisors where they want to be reached, which is often sitting in front of their computer ahead of meeting with clients or just after meeting with clients. Um, it's just different than it was years ago of, of going into a branch, hosting a lunch for all the advisors at the wirehouse office uh, that I used to go to uh, when I was at a former employer. It just those, those things probably are not happening anywhere to the same degree. Asset managers are getting smarter in this digital world that we're in. Yeah, I look, this is probably a very obvious statement, but I think clearly the pandemic changed things. And I think advisors and investors, they want to consume information on demand. They want it to be, you know, via different technology or different mediums. Uh, like you said, they want to be, you know, reached where where, where they want to be reached and, and on their terms. And I think that, you know, that's what's changed through over the next few years. And I'm not sure we're going back to where... Not not that in person doesn't work. I, I I think there's a lot of value to to being in person, but I think to to what we're saying, you know, leveraging things like podcasts and videos and social media, I, I just I think that's going to be critical for ETF issuers moving forward. Um, okay, lastly, and, and this is sort of related, but one other broader takeaway I had from the conference was that registered investment advisors, so RIAs they're still clearly very enthusiastic about uh, using ETFs and also looking at different technology solutions and other ways they can add value to to, uh, to their clients. And as I believe you're aware, I uh, highlighted Vetify's recent acquisition of Logically on the podcast last week, which I think is a perfect example here. But the, the question I'll ask you, Todd, is what inning of advisor ETF adoption do you think we're, we're in right now? And how do you think technology... Uh, we'll continue facilitating this. And I know it's it's been cliche to talk about this for years, right, that uh, fee-based RIAs are embracing ETFs, blah, blah, blah. We know that. But I, I'm truly curious as to how long you think uh, the runway is here. So I think there's still lots of room for growth and adoption, and we're certainly seeing it. Uh, I know you've spoken with Tom Hendrickson and others uh, from Vetify to talk about the advisor sentiment data that we have that helps us understand what topics are of interest for advisors, what ETFs in particular are of interest that we're now made available for asset managers to tap into. I use that content to generate or use that data to generate content ideas. I wrote recently about active large-cap growth ETFs that were outperforming because we saw a strong interest in growth over value. Uh, and I've written about corporate bond ETFs because we saw sentiment spike in that. But what is to more specifically to your question, 
we're seeing the number of advisors that are visiting our site increase on a monthly basis uh, to both ETF trends and ETF database and to a wide range of individual topics. So I think we're still in the early innings. I don't, it's tough to come up with what inning we're in because I don't know when the game is necessarily going to end and we certainly can go into extra innings. Um, even though there's a pitch clock uh, going on even more and more uh, for baseball, I just think there's still so much room for asset managers to meet advisors where they want to be spoken to, for advisors to come learn about asset management products and ETFs, and the more products that are coming out that we touched on uh, across thematic, across active, across fixed income. Uh, I couldn't be more excited to be supporting this space. And you as a registered investment advisor tied to the industry in other ways probably couldn't be even more excited to be, you know, we were here 10 years ago and now the, the party's gotten a lot more interesting. No, I think that's very well said. And you know what, if you look at some of these recent surveys that have come out, there's, there's been a, a number of them over the past month or so, Brown Brothers Harriman, Track Insight had one, PwC, there, there's, there's some others. All of those are very bullish on uh, the future trajectory, the, the future growth of ETFs. You know, these are different surveys of different uh, audiences and, you know, across the board, very bullish projections on the growth of the industry. But Todd, I know you have to run. I, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, today. Always enjoy hearing your perspective. And I, I like this format, uh, getting an independent perspective on these different topics. It's like a uh, an independent grade on my takeaways, which I like. But enjoy the uh, rest of your time this morning at the New York Stock Exchange. My pleasure and apologies to everybody for the background noise, but excited to be with you and, and to talk more about ETFs in the future. That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Sprott. If you would like to learn more about Sprott ETFs, you can visit SprottETFs.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Alexandra Russo, who is head of ESG Client Portfolio Management at Candrium. Candrium's a $150 billion-plus global asset manager. Uh, they're a recognized pioneer and leader in sustainable investment, and their strategies do underpin several ESG ETFs, which will be the topic of conversation. Uh, should be interesting. We're going to get into why Alexandra believes ESG is not a political issue. Until then... Have a great week, everyone.